Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Behind the Scenes. Coming up on today's episode, we'll be speaking with Mary Rogers, Cuisinart's Director of Marketing Communications. We'll speak with Mary about various things, not only their seasonal approach at Cuisinart, but also the balance between marketing to consumers with the purpose of directing them to a retail partner versus their own retail website. Many brands finding themselves in that conundrum and trying to balance those objectives. In news, we'll discuss dollar stores, both Dollar Tree, the organization, and Dollar General with earnings calls this week. And we'll look ahead to a retailer that's coming out of bankruptcy after a fairly successful last 16 months during the pandemic. A reminder that you can like us or rate us however you access us. Again, those ratings, if you enjoy the show, do help others to find us and check us out. Also, you can see us on Instagram and Twitter at Retail Podcast. I'm told Leighton will be uploading pictures of a recent store visit I made to the last Kmart in Marshall, Michigan, or the last Kmart in Michigan, which is located in Marshall, Michigan. It's a smaller town of under 10,000 people, not a lot of general merchandise retailers in that area, and very much like stepping back in time. And if you happen to look at those pictures, I think the Kmart looks quite a bit like what might have been an old Walmart store from the late 80s to early 90s, although difficult to kind of trace that lineage back. In any case, I digress. Let's get to the dollar store information. Now, as with most general merchandise retailers, we expected a bit of a backtrack in sales from the panic buying last year. However, for Dollar Tree in particular, the backtrack wasn't actually very significant, and therefore we saw some better than expected overall numbers for both Dollar Tree, Family Dollar Combo, and Dollar General as well. So let's begin with those numbers for Dollar Tree and Family Dollar. Same store sales across the enterprise decreased just 0.1%. Now, all the numbers I'm going to give you are on a constant currency basis. As Dollar Tree and Family Dollar both have holdings in Canada. Now, their same store sales were helped mostly by Dollar Tree coming in up 2.2%. And let's remember that they had significant issues with out-of-stocks and immediate supply chain in the same period in that second quarter last year, resulting in sales numbers that maybe weren't as great as some of the other retailers. And this was for a variety of reasons, but certainly the panic buying hit Dollar Tree a little bit harder than other general merchandise retailers, in part because of that price point, but also in part because they didn't maybe have the connections with suppliers as some other retailers had. Now, Family Dollar, meanwhile, dropped 2.5% in terms of same-store sales versus last year. That was against a 13.6% increase last year. So not as bad as many, including ourselves, thought the drop would be for them. At Dollar General, meanwhile, same-store sales took a bit more of a hit in this quarter, down 4.7%. However, they had a more robust second quarter last year than their competitors, and so their two-year stack, when you look at it on a two-year basis, still beats out Family Dollar at a 14.1% increase versus 
family dollars two-year stack of 11.1%. And interestingly, for Dollar General, traffic was down, but ticket was up. Exactly the reverse of what we've been seeing at most retailers in the second quarter. But that is a positive, certainly, for Dollar General. And it speaks to some of their initiatives, including DG Fresh, including Health and Beauty, which on the earnings call itself, they were very bullish about. Now, net income for both retailers was a bit of a different story, just as far as direction. Dollar Tree and Family Dollar bounced back to their familiar strong margins, particularly at Dollar Tree. Net income across the enterprise of 5.1% of sales. Dollar General came in with strong net income numbers in comparison, 7.3% of sales, so still higher than their competitors, but this represented a decrease versus last year, due in large part to deleveraging. In fact, net income fell 19.1% on just a standard basis, on a numerical basis, while net sales decreased just 0.4%. Still, sales not coming in where they did last year. You saw deleveraging really impact that bottom line. Finally, with regard to numbers, store openings in the dollar store space has historically been a big topic for us, and Dollar General continued to hit it hard during the quarter, opening 270 new stores during the period, remodeling 477 stores and relocating 25 stores. Dollar Tree and Family Dollar as an enterprise were, as is typical for them, a bit more metered, 131 new openings, 30 stores relocated or expanded, and 37 stores closed, which store closure is not really something that Dollar General saw any of. Anytime a store closed, one opened to replace it as a matter of relocation. 470 additional remodels took place, by the way, for Family Dollar to update to their H2 or combo store formats, which we'll talk about in a second. Now that brings us to initiatives for each of these retailers. And while Dollar General's main initiatives have been of late simply expansion of their brick and mortar and then also digital, including building out their app, Dollar Tree as a company is focused on really sprucing up their brick and mortar presence. And this starts really with Family Dollar. All these years after the merger, they're still attempting to find the best way to find those elusive synergies between Family Dollar and Dollar Tree. And now they believe they've found it with their combo store formats. These are something that you'll see in Family Dollar stores. And something that we discussed on the show earlier this year is this was rolled out in March. I actually began seeing it in a few rural areas recently. More specifically, a couple of weeks ago, I was visiting the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and noticed a couple of different Family Dollar combo stores there, including Dollar Tree assets. And what was interesting is, in fact, one of those towns in that general Northwoods, Wisconsin, Michigan, Upper Peninsula area, a Family Dollar store that had been built, oh, in the last 15 years, it was definitely a newer generation build, had closed only to be replaced by a Family Dollar located at a different location in the town at an older store, but larger square footage, and it had some of these Dollar Tree components in it. So you kind of wonder, obviously, everyone's decision as far as real estate is fueled by a number of different things, whether it be rents, whether it be square footage. But you kind of have to wonder if the square footage didn't play into that so they could integrate some of those Dollar Tree store within a store concepts, if you will, for Family Dollar. 
Now, to date, they have 105 of these combo stores in operation, and basically all numbers are trending positive for this small sample size. So I'll give you some of these numbers. The combo stores are delivering 23% more sales, 31% more gross margin dollars, 120% more cash contribution dollars, and for new store openings, they're reducing payback time by 30%. Now, one thing to note, as I mentioned, those combo stores are of a larger square footage. They average 12,300 square feet versus 9,500 square feet for the typical family dollar. So even if you just strip it down, if you were inclined to compare similarly sized new stores, combo stores are delivering sales increases year over year of 17%. Meanwhile, renovated or relocated combo stores are delivering a 40% sales increase over their unrenovated cousins. One reason why, if you're family dollar, you might want to jump from that eight to 9,000 square foot location to a 12 to 13,000 square foot location, even if the building is slightly older. So as a result of all this, it's no surprise that they see a runway here for a number of these combo stores in the US. They see, in fact, about 3,000 combo stores in their future in rural areas alone. And that's something we should mention. Primarily, these tests have been in the rural United States. Now, they project of their new family dollar stores, 85% of them will be combo stores by 2022 or by the end of that year. 400 new renovated or relocated combo stores next year alone. Now, to date, their main research has been in rural markets, but they did mention that they're beginning to study in other demographic areas as well, urban and suburban areas, for example. And I think this has the potential to be a major differentiator in rural areas versus something like conversions, which is what we saw early on in that Dollar Tree family dollar merger. We saw a number of circumstances where former family dollar stores were changed over to Dollar Tree stores in rural areas. I think a great example of this would be in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Well, that store didn't really take off. Even though it changed to Dollar Tree, it didn't really fuel traffic. Uh, some customers stopped shopping there, and it said that that store will indeed close down once the lease is up there on the property. So you kind of wonder, you know, four or five years ago when they make that decision, if they say, hey, We'll keep it a family dollar, but we're going to integrate some of the Dollar Tree concepts, that store within a store combo concept, if you will, if that particular store does a little bit better. And keep in mind, I say this is a differentiator because of the fact that this is something that Dollar General isn't really bringing to bear in these markets. They don't have that Dollar Tree brand name to bandy about. And so it's important for family dollar who, you know, a lot of these stores are right across from a Dollar General in some of these rural areas to be able to advertise and use that Dollar Tree logo and use the fact that there is a significant selection of products priced at exactly $1 versus Dollar General. You kind of wonder if that's going to create some price competition there, at least in rural areas for them. Now, H2 stores, which we've mentioned over the last several years for Family Dollar, they continue to do well for them. They continue to focus on renovations there as well, as we talked about. 435 stores alone were renovated to the H2 format in the second quarter, bringing their total count now above 3,300. And these stores, by the way, seem to be more ideal for urban and suburban areas, although very important for the store chain as a whole. 
to bring some of those into rural areas where those areas can support as well. Meanwhile, at Dollar Tree specifically, their Dollar Tree Plus initiative continues to test well, even though it's a little bit slow moving. Currently, this concept, which again is stretching that $1 price point to $2 or $5, for example, that's in 340 stores with a goal of 500 at the end of the year. This is more of a long-term initiative for the company as a whole versus Family Dollars H2 or Combo Stores. Gradually, they hope to ramp up to 5,000 stores with the plus concept over the next four years. Now, as regards this initiative, it is providing a sales lift of 6%. That's a little bit slimmer than what we're seeing from the combo stores for Family Dollar. About the same lift for gross profit and less than a year payback on investment. I, I think it's interesting now. We get the benefit, of course, of hindsight, but Remember, three, four years ago, analysts were clamoring for Dollar Tree to ditch their $1 price point and be a little bit more flexible with that. Some analyst firms said that Dollar Tree could come close to doubling even their sales. Well, we find out it's about 6% now. And a lot of these same analysts or activist investors were pushing for Dollar Tree to ditch family dollar altogether, whether that be to sell them off or close the stores or what have you. But here it is in 2021, the family dollar stores, especially those combo stores, doing quite well. And management has finally gotten their feet underneath them as far as some of these initiatives with their family dollar store base. You have to think they are in a solid position to compete with Dollar General. Speaking of which, they're expecting, at Dollar General, 1,750 store remodels and 100 relocations by the end of this year, at least. And two things we've discussed in the past, DG Fresh and Pop Shelf had their initial rollouts in the quarter. Many of the new locations opened during the quarter, by the way, included one or both of these things. Interestingly, their digital work wasn't mentioned in the prepared release but was covered on the call itself, and I found it intriguing that no analysts actually asked questions about their digital sales. But as far as Dollar General is concerned, their main focus is the app, for which they already have just around 4 million monthly active users, accounting for about a 28% increase year over year. So a solid sign for them. They're getting people to use the app. Additionally, the DG Media Network, a non-traditional revenue source, Stop me if you've heard that one before. We've talked about it a lot with Walmart and Kroger. Why not Dollar General, too? Uh, that saw their active campaigns up 65% over last year. Now, for both retailers, back to school so far is strong for both. And one final thing I do want to mention in the analyst Q&A, it came up that a lot of the market share that Dollar General is grabbing out there is actually coming from retail pharmacy. And they said they actually see quite a bit of a runway. We talk all the time about grocery deserts they said hey there are some big time health deserts out there and we're looking to kind of cinch up that need in the future as well that's kind of like a decade long project if you will a very long project for dollar general but that's something that they're looking at as you see companies like rite aid for example having closed down a number of their rural locations over the last several years area where Dollar General has a massive footprint, the southeastern United States, lost a number of Fred's locations. Of course, that was a big retail pharmacy in the area, and they haven't been replaced by Walgreens or CVS or Rite Aid stores. So interesting to note from Dollar General, I think that's something to kind of keep an eye on for the next decade to see just 
how much market share they can grab from retail pharmacies and how much in terms of not only HBA, but in terms of health and wellness that Dollar General can really push to their stores, which are you kind of at some point you run out of square footage in those stores, which are usually around eight or nine thousand square feet in the rural areas. Well, that'll do it for the news segment of the show. Coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Mary Rogers, Cuisinart's Director of Marketing Communications. She'll join us to discuss various things, but among them, we'll talk about the assets that they make available to their retail partners to help move their product, of course, and the way in which they straddle the difference between marketing to push traffic to their partners and marketing to push traffic to their own website. If you've listened to the podcast recently, you know we've got a great podcast partner in Quantum Metric. And look, I want to talk to those especially involved in the digital retail space. If you would like to know what your customer is experiencing, not only what your customer is experiencing, but how many customers are experiencing this thing, kind of that silent majority effect. You can do that through Quantum Metrics various tools. And it's important to do that before a code freeze, you know, because the holiday season has already basically begun. Most preparations are solidified. 2021 holiday e-commerce sales are expected to be excellent over 2020 benchmarks and you should be prepared to capture every customer revenue opportunity and with quantum metric you can be they have a unique approach to the digital customer experience which helps today's top retailers and e-commerce brands quickly identify and prioritize the big and small revenue opportunities that keep customers engaged and coming back they help retailers we talk about all the time on the show we've mentioned tractor supply company we've mentioned Bass Pro, Crate and Barrel, which is a very popular retailer among our listeners, I know. So they should also be helping out your retail company as well. Reduce customer friction, increase conversions, and personalize the shopping experience by getting a sneak peek. If you want a sneak peek at Quantum Metric Services, visit them at quantummetric.com slash pod offer all one word and see if you qualify to receive their 12 days of insights offer with the promo code retail focus also all one word this offer gives you 12 day access to their platform coupled with a bespoke insight report that will help you identify where customers are struggling or engaging in your digital product restrictions apply the link and the promo code are in the show notes. But once again, that's quantummetric.com slash pod offer code retail focus to see if you qualify to receive their 12 days of insights offer. We've now exited one shopping season back to school and are just about to enter the holiday shopping season in full force. It's a holiday shopping season that might start a little earlier this year than in years past. And as such, many retailers and brands will be shifting their marketing strategy and messaging somewhat, which, of course, raises questions from an insight perspective. How are brands approaching marketing across shopping seasons, especially with COVID looming over everything? What are the best ways to have a dialogue with customers in 2021? And how is messaging regarding new product lines best disseminated to the public? Well, to answer those questions and more, we're pleased to be joined by Mary Rogers, Cuisinart's Director 
of Marketing Communications. Mary, welcome to the show. Nice to be here today. Thank you for having me. Now, I think most people are likely familiar with Cuisinart as a kitchen-centric products manufacturer, appliances, and the like. But, you know, the company actually has quite an interesting story, and it's pretty diverse in terms of operations managed by Conair as well. I was wondering if you could give our listeners kind of a high-level overview of the operations there. Yeah, so our parent company is Conair Corporation. It's Conair LLC. And basically, we are run, even though we're a big global company, we're run on a basically a strategic business unit level. So the business unit level I belong to is called Culinary. It includes Cuisinart and also a brand called Wearing, which is focused mostly on commercial products for things like restaurants and B&I and colleges, universities, you know, healthcare operations. And though we're part of a really big global company, we are, I kind of refer to ourselves as like scrappy entrepreneurs because we're really focused on one brand and it's very decentralized globally, but our total focus is Cuisinart and we're run like almost like a small company inside a big company. So you've got that singular brand focus. And I was curious, just because you are, of course, involved with the marketing, very involved with the marketing at Cuisinart, what's kind of the holistic marketing approach that you and your team have as far as Cuisinart is concerned? Well, the holistic approach is really how can we help our consumers live a better life? We, you know, our tagline is savor the good life. But we look at things from a very holistic level. We're looking at lots of trends in the marketplace. We are very focused on what things are impacting consumers on a day-to-day basis. You know, in the last two years, that's become more prevalent in our business, just because, as you know, every day brings on a new challenge. And so we kind of look at it from the, the big picture approach. And I'll give you an example, like, Right now, one of the things that we're concerned about is, you know, the you started to talk about the back to school season, which I'm in the Northeast. So it's starting in the next couple of weeks and then in early September. And we're looking at it from the approach of, okay, we're going to have possibly kids back in school, possibly kids not back in school. You're going to have parents and people who are cohabitating, possibly being on mixed schedules. So when we're looking at our marketing, we're looking at it from all the possibilities that consumers may be dealing with and how that drills down into how they're going to feed their family. Because at the end of the day, our products are basically a catalyst for consumers to provide, you know, love and care and feeding through food to their family. So you talked about some of the things that informed your approach to the back to school campaign. Specifically, I was wondering what some of the initiatives were that Cuisinart had in place for the back to school time period. And again, it's not necessarily that you're marketing to students, but parents and and everything around that ecosystem. Yes, exactly. So one of the things that we focused on this year, back to school, which was new for us, was looking at the college environment and knowing that this year, kids will be back in a you know cohabiting situation in school dorms. We launched some new products in the categories for the kitchen and outside the kitchen, 
with air purifiers and also marketing items that we felt were more appropriate for possible environment that a college student would be into. So some of the smaller, you know, maybe four cup coffee makers, single serve coffee makers, griddlers. I mean, because a lot of students are not just in dorms, some of them are in apartments, so they have different needs. But at the end of the day, we do know that they're not necessarily buying those items for themselves, but they're deciding on what items they need possibly with their parents or whomever their support system is to get them ready to go back to school. And I know myself, my niece goes to the University of Richmond and she's going back to school this week and she'll be in an apartment for the first time with other students because she's a junior and that's allowed. And so she's doing her kitchen inventory, like deciding what she needs, what she doesn't need, and also making sure she has the things that will best work for her as she transitions from dorm living into more of an apartment living situation. Right. So your niece is a spider. Very good. (laughs) Junior year. Best of luck for the junior year there. You mentioned air purifiers as being something that Cuisinart is stepping into. And I know that signals uh, a big product addition for the company because the company had been kitchen-centric for so long. I'm curious from a marketing perspective or even from an approach as far as introducing those type of products to consumers, what decisions do you make as far as how you go about marketing the new products or making consumers aware that, hey, Cuisinart makes really good air purifiers now? Yeah, so interestingly enough, we're learning a lot, actually. The one thing is the smaller unit that we're marketing is a countertop air purifier. So it can be used in the kitchen, but a lot of times air purifiers are categorized as either small room or large room air purifiers. And so this is really our first foray out of in the kitchen, but also out of the kitchen because our larger model is a whole room model that can cover a thousand square feet. The thing is interesting for me because we're thinking about different applications, right? Like you know, bedrooms, home offices, like home offices now, you know, a lot of people are still either in hybrid or work from home totally. Those types of things become really important to consumers keeping their air fresh because they're basically in the house a lot more than they had been in the past. Or even, you know, for offices that are, you know, in buildings, if a consumer is more comfortable having an air purifier in their office or their workspace, you know, that's an option too. And the other thing is we also built out a lot more content around the other areas that air purifiers would be used in the home, not just in the kitchen. So obviously still focusing on kitchen, but, you know, like I said, home offices, dens, home gyms. I mean, there's so many different places that you can use an air fryer in the home. It's opening a whole another area for us. It's really interesting, actually. You mentioned the creation of content as it pertains to the air purifiers, but I know this is something you do for a lot of your new product lines as well. If you go through the Cuisinart timeline, basically the last 10 to 15 years, it's not unusual for you to be releasing several new product lines in a given year. What type of content do you create around those new product lines? So specific for the air purifiers, we were really cognizant about the sheer number of images we needed videos that we needed, also building out custom landing pages because we know consumers want to maybe educate themselves more about a product like that. It might not be something that they've had in their consideration set in the past. So we're building out a lot more volume. And the other thing I would say too is from our retail partners, 
they have greater expectations of us providing better and more vast content for their web properties. Because, you know, a lot of retailers are not in the situation, nor do they have the resources to build custom content for every single SKU that they carry on their digital shelf. So it's become more important, not just for us, but for us to also share those items for our retail partners. And let's talk about that while we're on the subject. We'll get into holiday sales in a bit, but I'm, I'm kind of curious now what table stakes are for brands that are providing products to retailers that have an e-commerce presence as far as making sure that they have the content that they want and they feel their customers need. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say there are still some of our retail partners who are producing their own custom content. It tends to be more of the like smaller specialty retailers that will do that. I would say that, you know, they're heavily reliant on us, like I mentioned earlier, because of the fact that they need it faster and better digitally. You know, everything is expected to move faster. One of the things that we do is we use a product information management system. Our PIM is Salsify. They're our retail partner as far as syndicating content to our retailers. And so we have basically all of our assets kept in one place and all of our teams can access them and then automatically output them to the specs of our retailers. So we are shortening the time to market, which makes us more competitive and also house all of our assets they would need to get their digital self ready. And then lastly, one of the things that we started doing in the last about year or so is doing audits of our retail digital shelves. So teaching our sales teams how to audit the content that they do have on the digital shelf. And then we also check up on them, make sure that it's clean and tidy. And we're doing that as we launch all new products and then also go back and look at key categories. And then we also will, we're getting, you know, shelf ready now for holiday. So perfect transition there into the holiday season, which is always a big one for Cuisinart, not just in terms of uh, people getting gifts for one another, but also people making sure they have what they need for maybe preparing some elaborate meals around the house in November and December. Now, in a typical year, non-COVID year, that is, how does Cuisinart approach the season, given that your cadence of sales is probably different than a lot of other product groups out there? That's completely true. We prefer to fourth quarter as our Super Bowl, you know, but interestingly enough, January and February are still very strong months for us after holiday. And that pertains basically to things like gift cards and self-purchase. And, you know, a lot of times retailers will have some like after holiday sales that uh, consumers take advantage of. So our sales period is basically in a normal year, I would say, early to the first two weeks in November through the end of December. But obviously with COVID, that's changed pretty dramatically in that, like I said earlier, we're looking more at things like back to school, which kind of moves our season up a little bit. And then you also have Halloween. We're not obviously, you know, a strong Halloween player, but those are when you start to see entertaining kind of start picking up. We also know that that's when people are starting to prepare for things like Thanksgiving. 
you know, making sure they have, they need new cookware or they need to get their food processor, you know, ready for those big entertaining holidays. That's when we see that start to happen. And we know that through some of the Google analytics that we have access to, what people are searching for in general, what search terms are popping. And then obviously, as you get closer to holiday, people are in that thought process for gift giving mode. For this year, we expect, I mean, it did last year too. Last year was a bit of an anomaly because people didn't have large gatherings. And then the hope this year was that that would be back. People would be starting to think more about those special holidays where they're able to get together. And we still hope that to be true. I know there's also been a lot of talk about supply chain shortages and things like that. And, you know, you'll already hear a lot of editorial on things like, you know, buy your stuff early. So I expect that to happen where people are going to be a little more concerned about being able to get the items that they need for holiday. So that's something that is definitely on consumers' minds. You mentioned the likelihood of perhaps more gatherings in the family home this year as compared to last. And uh, of course, you still have the whole Delta variant kind of hanging over everything. But what are some of the ways from a marketing perspective that you toe the line between acknowledging that obviously there's this necessity of safety out there, but also the fact that there will be just fact of the matter, probably more gatherings this year. And so it's important to continue to market towards those as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there's things that depends on what state you live in, obviously, but there are things that you can do to help ease your guests' concerns about having parties in a sense, you know, or gatherings in general. And, you know, there's been a big push towards maybe for appetizers instead of doing things like, you know, self-serve. You can actually, I've seen some really cute ideas already on Instagram about making up like small self-serve already put together appetizers so that people don't have to worry about touching, serving utensils and things like that. So I think there's there's some ways that we can help our consumers who are the entertainers. I know like I'm the one that throws Thanksgiving, so I'm already thinking about those things. And then, you know, like I said, I've heard stories where some people are just asking people what their situation is with being vaccinated. I know what my situation is with my family and my loved ones. So I think a lot of decisions may be made on that fact too, depending on, you know, how the Delta variant progresses or recedes over the next month or so. I wanted to finish up today by asking a couple of more general questions just about Cuisinart's marketing approach and the like. Because Cuisinart sells direct to consumer on the website, by the way, which is formatted very, very nicely. As I was researching for this interview, I spent probably more time shopping than I did researching as it turned out, but sell direct to consumer as well as through retailers, which we've discussed. How do you balance the the marketing approach there? I know part of it is going to be top of mind or trying to get top of mind for the consumer, but how much is pushing them towards the Cuisinart website and how much is just like, hey, brand awareness as far as when you're visiting that retailer? Yeah, so we take a mixed approach to that. We have some of our marketing is focused on direct to consumer and some is focused on general brand or brand awareness or you know, we do tend to have a focus on, you know, product specific approach because we kind of 
each of our products, we look at it as and of itself. For instance, an air purifier, you're not going to market an air purifier the same way that you're going to market a food processor. And you're approaching possibly some similarities in the people who would make a consideration to buy it, but then they have completely separate purposes. So I would say that our overall approach with our website is that we drive consumers to our web property. For some bigger categories like air purifiers, we have built out specific product landing pages with much more robust content. And so when we are, whether it's through our email marketing, our search, our display, or other efforts, we push them to that product landing page where they can learn more and purchase the product. But at all times on our website, when you go to a product landing page, the consumer has the choice of either purchasing from us, or we also will display the logos of all of our premier retail partners, where the consumer can then click on that logo and it brings them to the same exact product on the retailer website. So we take kind of a multi-prong approach to that, you know, because at the end of the day, yes, we do want to grow our G2C business and it's been growing very healthily, but we also want to support our retail partners. Some of our big like tent pole marketing when it comes to commercial TV advertising and things like that, we take a similar approach. We actually include our retail partner logos in the commercials at the end. Sometimes you'll see that with other brands that do that. And then we also do include ourselves in some of those advertisements as, you know, purchase, you know, on Cuisinart.com. So we take a kind of a multi-avenue approach to that. And then I know you mentioned, of course, in the beginning, analytics data as one of the key drivers as far as decision making is concerned. And you mentioned just a little bit ago, of course, using Google Analytics regarding that holiday cadence is wondering what are some of the key things you look at in terms of the data or maybe other things when you're developing an approach or a campaign? At the end of the day, it's about conversion. <laughs> so our ultimate KPI is, is usually conversion, but it depends on what type of marketing it is and then also what KPI is appropriate. When it comes to our email marketing, we're looking at conversion, but we're also looking at lots of other data points. We have a pretty robust market research group that reports to me, and we use data for everything from understanding the product usage, you know, testing concepts, and then all the way down to our digital marketing efforts and D2C efforts. You know, we're looking at a lot of different data points. You know, one of the big things right now that I'm sure you're well aware of that marketers are concerned about is obviously the loss of cookies. We've got a little bit of a reprieve with Google on that, but that is something that, you know, moving forward in, in the marketing space, that's top of mind with leaders who are, you know, trying to drive business and also obviously awareness and conversion. And then I wanted to close with this question. Of course, you've been working in the marketing and communication field for quite some time. What is perhaps the biggest change since you started in the field versus now, whether it be as far as the overall approach, whether it be in terms of content creation, what's the biggest change that you've seen? Just multi-channel marketing in general. There's so many channels that you can use now to market to consumers that I think one of the things that you always have to keep in mind is as these new channels open, they always have to tie back to whatever your overall strategy is. 
the way I look at things, my approach is, is not to chase after the newest shiny ball, but like understand how that is going to one, serve your customers two work with your strategy and three, how is it going to, you know, drive business overall for the organization? I think that's one of the biggest changes. And I would say the second one is just the sheer amount of data that is available and how to make good use of that data, make good decisions by using that data. Some great insight into the thought processes behind, whether it be marketing campaigns or product releases. Once again, Mary Rogers, Cuisinart's Director of Marketing Communications. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we appreciate Mary for joining us here. And as we wrap up the show this week, we want to look ahead at a company that is bouncing back from bankruptcy after entering bankruptcy protection in 2018. We're talking about Mattress Firm here and a good article, a Q&A, in fact, in USA Today kind of covered what COVID or the pandemic has been like for Mattress Firm. John Eck, their current CEO, talked to Nathan Bomey of USA Today and excerpt was available within USA Today. I think there are some interesting facets here. One is they were able to trim about 700 stores during bankruptcy. It's interesting because store trimming is probably the number one thing on Mattress Firm's to-do list, but there are still stores that I've seen within the same market that are within a block or two of one another, not even one being an outlet store and one a full-price store, just both full-price stores. So you think that there still might be some of that on the table for Mattress Firm, and that's something that X certainly mentioned during this interview, but he said they want to stabilize at about 2,400 to 2,600 locations. Currently, he said they have 2,400 high-performing stores, and that is a direct quote. He said the last 15 to 16 months have been very good for the company, as once again, people look at that nesting area and trying to make their home the best they possibly can when they're working from home spending a lot more time in the home. Really, the questions you have as you look ahead here, a couple of things. One is, of course, the popularity of the beds in the box. This is nothing new. This is something that's taken place over the last five to six years. But it's interesting because X said that, hey, our showrooms enable a lot of these bed-in-the-box companies to serve as testing grounds. 90%, in fact, more than 90% of mattress firm sales currently are in brick and mortar because they want to try before they buy. And so Eck feels as though that kind of puts Mattress Firm in a leader seat, if you will, as far as forging partnerships with those bed-in-a-box companies. The reason, though, the second thing I'm looking ahead at Mattress Firm specifically is you you have these great 15 to 16 months during the pandemic, during a time when more people are spending time at home. And you've sold a lot of mattresses during this time, which has helped the company out of a bankruptcy. So that all is good. And certainly you don't have to give that money back if you're a mattress firm. But mattresses are not a regular purchase for people, especially 
those bed-in-a-box mattresses or well-constructed mattresses. These are things that are going to last for several years, maybe up to a decade at some point. So my question is, have they saturated the market more or less? Have people bought all the mattresses they're going to buy during the last 15 to 16 months? And will sales return to pre-pandemic levels, which for them wasn't that great in 2017 or 2018? Now, keep in mind, a main reason for their bankruptcy was the fact that they had so many long-term leases on hard corners, expensive real estate, so you're talking expensive rents per square foot. And the bankruptcy helped them to get out from underneath a few of those. But still, it does cause a little bit of concern wondering if they can keep these sales numbers high against a number of competitors in what has become a very competitive space of late. Now, of course, it's always good for retail, for stores to stay open long term. So it would be good for mattress firm if sales progressed at their current rate, it would be good for retail in general. But as people return, in theory, after the various variants get kicked to the curb for COVID to return to spending money on entertainment, spending money on travel, what does this mean for home goods companies and specifically those like Mattress Firm who aren't exactly in the off-price segment? Well, that'll do it for us this week on the show. Coming up next week, our interview guest is Erica Blair with the Rural Grocery Initiative. We talked a little bit about Dollar General, Family Dollar, their locations in rural areas on this show. But Erica is going to talk a little bit about the Rural Grocery Initiative, what it does, the importance of rural grocery stores to those local communities, and different innovations in the space as far as ownership, as far as marketing is concerned, that's making rural grocery stores more viable than ever in an era where a lot of these towns have been left behind by the likes of Amazon or Walmart. So I think it's a fascinating interview. You'll want to tune in for that. Erica does a really good job breaking down exactly everything that takes place with not only starting up a rural grocery store, but also ensuring the long-term health of grocery in rural areas. For Layton Behind the Scenes, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.